I have the great privilege of talking to and learning from smart and creative and wildly interesting and inspirational people every day. And I want you to have that same experience. And so I decided to start interviewing them. And I want you to come along and listen and learn and enjoy with me. I'm your host, Phil Luce, and this is the Sample Bucket Podcast, where we learn all kinds of different things about people who own, operate, manage, and otherwise work in grain businesses. It's always more rewarding when you try and make something out of nothing in music, and it's more rewarding when you build something in the grain business that you're not entirely sure that you're going to use to its fullest extent. That's always been more exciting to me than just coasting along and doing business as usual. On this episode of Sample Bucket, I'm interviewing Bert Edgison. I've known Bert since 1995, and I'm proud to call him a friend and a mentor, and like me, maybe someone who's a poet at heart. Bert is the owner of Stewart Grain in Stewart, Indiana, which has been in operation since 1922, and Bert's been running things there since 1982. It's a great honor for me to have Bert as the first guest on this podcast. How do you think this will be used? Well, here's the thing. Uh, this is uh, starting, it's something I've been thinking about for probably almost two years and I just needed to take the plunge. Um, I think that there are a lot of interesting people with with fascinating life experiences in our customer base and beyond our customer base too, but I'm starting with customers because that's who I know. And um, I, number one, I'm... I hope I just learn a lot from talking to people. Uh, number two, I hope other people will learn from the conversations we have, all kinds of things about the grain business and about life and about uh, overcoming fear and everything. And uh, and I guess back to white commercial, I do hope it, it would be a way to to enhance the sense of community that I think we already are pretty good at. So a quality of life builder. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. I, I it probably is, uh, frankly it's a little bit derivative. There are a couple of podcasts that I really enjoy listening to and one of them's called How I Built This, which is just conversations with various people who've built businesses that most of us would know the name of and how they went from an idea to, you know, cooking granola bars on their mom's kitchen counter and then it was Cliff Bar later on and a whole bunch of things happened in between. And I find that really interesting. And then there's this guy, Lex Friedman, that I've been listening to lately, and he's an artificial intelligence computer programmer that used to be employed at MIT, and I think now he's maybe self-employed in some way, and he just interviews all these people, and he's a, a Russian immigrant. He asked the, just the wildest rambling run-on questions. It, it looks like a disaster on paper, but you learn so much from listening. So uh, a little bit, I want to see if I can recreate that with, with people in the grain business that I am inspired by. Okay. I wish this technology be technology had been available when I was talking to my uncle, getting yeah. his uh, military history, and wish I'd known to do it uh, even longer ago when I was able to talk to my dad about the same thing and about the beginning of the of the uh, grain business. But let's talk a little bit about that. You, you, uh, just from the time I've known you, I, I think it's fair to say that I, that you are very interested in military history is that is that primarily because your dad and your uncle and other people that you know were uh, served in in conflicts and so on i think i've always read military history even from a young age probably because i knew my dad served and 
didn't know that much about it when I was young, but I knew that he respected what he was able to do and what the country was trying to do at the same time. In the same way with my uncle, I sat and heard his stories, and they got to they repeated themselves a lot. And uh, then later on, I sat him down when he was in a wheelchair and tried to pull more out of him and. Uh, then studied that from there after I could no longer ask him questions after he died and have probably done more work on it after his death and uh, to find out where he was and have now gone to places where he was. So it's an interest for me, and my reading is primarily uh, World War II history, although I'm interested in all history. My grandfather, my dad's dad, was in the army air corps this was before there was an air force if i understand it right and he was stationed right. in he was stationed in great britain during world war ii and he was an airplane mechanic and he used to tell the wildest stories about uh these planes coming in that had crashed into a cornfield and they've got you know just corn stalks all up in the engine and he's you know he has to put them back together and try to get them back in the sky and he's i guess like you i, I feel like i was uh, I, I was a little late to understanding what his life was like and i by the time i was aware enough to want to ask him about it it was too late so that's i guess that's one of the well there's one, something to the be life learned lesson. from that in human history uh or a couple things one is uh ask early before you know you're interested which you're not going to be prone to do i guess and uh secondly learn how to ask the questions so that you can somehow record it, even if it's just writing things down on paper. I've got a five-inch thick stack of stories that old farmers have told me when they come in the grain elevator, and I rep reproduced about 30 of them to put on a couple of big boards at our 100th anniversary. And people kept saying, probably more than the great roast pork that they had that day, that they loved reading those old stories. That's incredible. All right, so the 100th anniversary, let, let's talk uh, a little bit about the history of Stewart Grain Company. It's, is it a, it's, it's past 100 years now, right? We're in the 101st or second year, maybe? No, this is the this 100th is, okay. year. Okay. And uh, we had a nice celebration and had a lot of all the farmers in. In fact, our annual hog roast was about twice the size that it normally was because we advertised and had music. And my wife made a 13 layer cake in the shape of the old wooden grain elevator Holy pretty smokes. proud of that that's incredible yeah, she did a great job on it and um so the history of stewart with a grain elevator came when the railroad came through in 1905 uh local guys built an elevator and it burnt in 1909 and was rebuilt that same year and that's the one that i have and uh, my grandfather was farming in the area and bought into the elevator in 1922, which is why we take 2022 as our yeah. 100th anniversary year. Yep, makes sense. What, what was the? <laughs> this is a. It's probably too broad of a question, but what's different 100 years later? I guess what, what did the place look like in 1922? What what was happening there? Well, uh, I have pictures of it in. Uh, I can place the old elevator and the old driveway and the old office 
right in the middle of everything today because I've grown up with it. might be harder for someone else who looks at the same pictures. Obviously, the elevator itself was 30,000 bushels and much smaller than the 5.5 million space there is today and uh, was made out of wood and run by uh, steam power and uh, the horses pulled the wagons up the hill. But I guess the reality was we do the exact same thing now as they did then, just with better equipment. Even in my time, when I came back in 1982, uh, my first year, I snuck away with a camera and climbed up on top of one of the bins and took a picture of the line. I was proud of the line that I had. There were like 12 or 15 uh, single-axle grain trucks and wagons in line at harvest, and I got the theme of the dryer in the background <laughs> and the line, picture of the line, and of course, I would be aghast at a line of 12 or 15 semis today. We've sped up so much, and um, I, I, I don't want a line ever. In fact, I've, <laughs> I advertise lightly that we never have a line, even though every once in a while you get stuck with a line, but we get them in and out of here, and I think people appreciate it. I know they do. Yeah, so along those lines, I guess, um, things change dramatically, and, and a lot of times when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to even see that it's happening until you stop and look back and, and realize the massive sweeping changes. And I think that's true of business, of, of an individual life, just in general. That's part of the human experience. But I wonder, can you think of something that you were – afraid of some change fundamental change to the grain business that you were afraid of that turned out to be okay or or even better than it used to be well it's not so much a fundamental change in the grain business uh, because we've always made money if we can store grain but when i first started to spend money to handle and store grain mm-hmm. i was aghast at that because uh, my family had done things uh, on a near shoestring long enough. I thought, if I spend money on this and it blows up on my, in my face uh, or I can't somehow pay for this or I, I don't use it to the extent to support the cost, I'm sure going to feel like I made a dumb error. And so I think for the, my first several years that I was here from 1982 to maybe 86, there were a lot of raggedy pieces of equipment that I kept patching up to use because I was money spending averse. Uh, I'll say something else too yeah. about uh, the changes over time. Uh, maybe you don't notice them. Uh, maybe you do. Uh, you know, but at least once a week, I see some piece of equipment or something that I've put here that is so good for us, handy for us. Uh, it speeds up the customer experience, and I'll say, "Gee, I wish my dad could have seen that." Mm. And sometimes I think, "Gee, I wish Grandpa, who I never met, could have seen that," because they walked those same grounds and worked in the old wood elevator before I retired it and uh, as their main piece of equipment it was and I so when I make an improvement that is 
got some technology in it and maybe it was a good idea and might even have cost some money, I think. Gee, I wish they could see that. I bet. Probably then since the 80s, you've you've done that many times. Oh, Just sure. Made big investments and, and so far. Uh, I guess, do you get comfortable with that eventually or is it it's a little bit of a gut check every time? You know, the last two times I built bins, uh, it was not much of a gut check at all. I, I think you always feel like, gee, do I really need this? But by then, uh, we were in a growth phase that I was pretty sure we did need it. I knew that we needed it. But yes, the first one or two that you do, you think, well, this is this is not right. I should not be doing this. The first tall leg that we put up, I felt bad that I was changing the skyline that both my dad and my grandpa had worked with. <laughs> kind of a kind of a silly notion, but um, uh, we sure needed we sure needed to grow, or I wouldn't be here if we weren't doing things like that. The story, the skyline got me thinking. The story I've heard, and I I, I suppose it was from you, but you know it could have been from someone that we both know or something, is that the the population of Stewart, Indiana as of right now, is two people, that being you and your wife, Susie. Is that accurate? That is accurate. And uh, when I've told that story in the past, sometimes we count the pets, sometimes we don't. <laughs> uh, when I was single, living here, population was one. That made the front page of the paper uh, when I first came back. And uh, the local paper, when they did a story about the elevator reopening, and uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, that Stuart was platted out. There's a picture somewhere of all the streets that were going to be built in conjunction with the railroad coming through. And, of course, one only one street was ever built. But there were several railroad employees that lived here in houses owned by the railroad on both sides of the track and both sides of the road at one point. So, yeah, populations has reduced in Stuart <laughs> over the years. For for people who don't know, which I assume will be plenty of people listening to this, you live in a house that was your parents' house before you that is on the property of the elevator, right across the driveway from the office and the bins in the grain dryer are out back and so on. And that, 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 that was that your parents' house and your grandparents before them, or how did that, how did that go? That's correct. And I believe it was owned by the previous owner of the elevator prior to 1922. All right. So you literally grew up in the grain business then. you, When you were a little kid, you played in the yard of the grain elevator and, and so on. And was it was it a entirely foregone conclusion that you would end up owning and running Stuart Grain right there in the yard that you grew up in? Or did it happen some other way? Well, I had my little toy tractor and wagon underneath the uh, scale platform and uh, worked around my dad's feet hauling grain out of the sample bucket, you know, from one bucket <laughs> to the other. And uh, I loved working here, and I loved doing what he was doing. He was always very careful to say, you do not have to do this. This can be a pretty dirty job. This can be a hard job. Uh, you do not have to do this, and was very careful to get me out of here to school and uh, always said, you don't have to do this. And, of course, my challenge was to see if I could do it and always did want to do it. But you worked uh, at one of the big grain companies first, is that right? Or maybe not first, but after college or during college? Right like out of school, 
yeah, I came back here and worked in the summers, of course, yep. uh, while I was at Purdue, but uh, was hired by Consolidated Grain and worked on the river. Of course, never had been ava- uh, around river shipping. Uh, we shipped by uh, by rail and by barge, and uh, boy, the river's great. What a neat industry that is and much needed in this country. And so I was kind of sorry to miss that after two and a half years when I came back here, but it was nice having had the experience. Where were you exactly on the river? I was in North Bend, Indiana, and Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. This would I'm have sorry, been... North Bend, Ohio, and Aurora, Indiana, uh, out just outside of Cincinnati. What year would that have been? 1980. June 16th was my first day of work. Okay. My my dad, when I was, this would have probably been 1981, worked at Jeff Boat in Jeffersonville, Indiana, building barges. Oh, yeah. For, for a little while. And that was a, I, I, I don't, I'm only aware of it. You know, I was six years old, so I'm, I'm only aware of it uh, side of, sort of as a side note in my life. But he, he worked there for the whole time that we lived on my grandfather's farm in southern Indiana. I so love I guess, clambering about barges. I didn't mind cleaning them out before we loaded grain in them. Uh, we our consolidated had a little harbor service at that time, so we were able to dispatch boats to go pull a barge off of a, a big tow that was coming through town, and we the, we might use the marine radio for that. Then we'd drop it and pick up the CB radio and dispatch a truck to. Uh, go down and pick up a, a load of uh, foundry coke that we had offloaded off the river. And then we might say, then get cleaned out after that and come get a load of corn. So we had uh, several businesses going on there for consolidated on the river at once. And I was intrigued by all the things going on. And you left there because you had to come back to Stewart. Is that right? When my dad was sick, uh, and in the hospital, uh, four days before he died, he was, uh, he knew that he wanted me to finish school. He did not want me to quit school and come back here. And he was able to find, uh, the local co-op, uh, to lease the elevator to for three years. And so then I soon graduated after that and, uh, had two and a half years of consolidated and the lease was coming up. The co-op said, we don't want to continue our lease. We don't want to re-up the lease because there's no business out there. And when I came back on September 5th of 1982, they had closed the place in the spring and the ragweeds were growing out of the scale Mm. and out of the uh, bridge platform going into the old elevator and uh, it looked a mess. So uh, yeah, there was business out here. They just didn't want to run an elevator. It seems like you've you've proven that pretty well over the years. Was there were you were you loading rail right away there, or were you a truck house at first? I was a truck house that first fall, but um, in fact, uh, I think very that very next winter we were able to get in some hopper cars because that was right at the beginning of the Staggers Act. Uh, right at, a few years after it, I guess, but they had just uh, then put in what they called gathering rates, and that opened up our ability to ship to some places within, gosh, within 100 miles by rail, and 
Uh, we've been shipping by rail ever since, and it's been important to us. In fact, today, if we had to go all truck, it would uh, outbound. It would change our business substantially, and I don't know how we'd ever give it enough trucks. There's enough competition for trucks around here. We we like shipping rail. We loaded uh, 15 cars of beans out yesterday, and that represents 50 trucks that we did not have to deal with and load. Yeah, makes a, makes all kinds of sense. You mentioned a couple things. A few minutes ago, you talked about how important the river and rail systems are to the country and all the significant and, and probably largely unseen work that they do, I think, uh, to the general populace. But anyhow, uh, you own a railroad. So is that was that out of necessity because you had to keep rail operations happening near you or is it just something you wanted to do or how did, how did you become a railroad owner? I didn't really want to do that, but in 1994, after having my customers write a lot of letters, and of course I wrote more than anybody to the ICC to try and keep Conrail from abandoning, abandoning this line, uh, Conrail approached me and said, you know, if you guys quit writing these letters, here's the price that we'll sell you <laughs> 10 miles of railroad for. And, uh, it seemed to me like near folly at the time, but I was able to meet with a short line operator to the north that I could connect to. And um, Ecky started in the grain business, I believe, after his – I'm sorry, in the railroad business, I believe after his own retirement from the grain business – and was having some fun with it. And I thought, well, if he can do that and build it up, maybe I can too. So, uh, yeah, we have to maintain uh, 10.76 miles of railroad, but it's a great connection for us. I only wish we could do more uh, over it. I wish we could get more cars from the short line that we still connect to. And um, I've actually tried to start some other businesses outbound, uh, products of different sorts, and especially inbound fertilizer, inbound aggregates. And uh, the short line does not seem to want anything except grain. And, in fact, I believe that they give us uh, less service than we got when I first started back in the 90s. So, uh, yeah, the railroad business could be a lot more uh, busy, and I would appreciate that. It seems to me, for just observationally, that um, maybe you got into it reluctantly, but it's it's a love of yours now. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. I, it's so easily done since they have to have the motive power, and I don't really have to have that. Of course, since we've loaded longer trains, the elevator here itself has bought a couple of 75-year-old locomotives that we use weekly. And uh, I just enjoy doing that. All my uh, when I if I'm busy in the office and we're loading a train, I try and get out there as often as I can throughout the train loading day. And I always feel like uh, they come up by the office to uh, set the cars to shove them down the track so they can then go back and get behind six more and bring them up. And I always run out and at least ride 
uh, about a quarter of a mile on the track because I thought, you know, if you got to have a railroad, you might as well get to ride the train. <laughs> I'll say that several years ago when I got to drive, I don't know if you have this locomotive anymore, but I, I got to drive, for lack of a better word, the locomotive, and it was by far the easiest mechanical thing I've driven, or if that's the right word, but but, but probably also in the top three most thrilling. It's just there's <laughs> just something good. something about pushing that big lever and, and the train starts to move and you're really not doing hardly anything compared to a jet ski or a car or anything else but it, boy what a thrill there's been uh, ages and ages of engineers that have felt the same way <laughs> i suppose that's right what, what what's the uh what's something about day-to-day -day operation of a railroad that that people don't know or would be surprised about well, uh, I, I guess the thing that we spend the most time on is weed control, mm. and uh, maybe the next uh, thing, or at least what uh, I'm worried about right now, not really worried about, but it's uh, forefront in my mind, is maintaining the five bridges that I have and um, making sure that they get a an inspection which is mandated annually and then dealing with the items that they suggest that we should. Uh, you need to weld on this girder, you need to add some struts here, you need to have a new foot plate over here. Uh, items of that nature we've done our own repairs on because it's kind of fun, we can do them. Uh, I don't know that we always do them and to the complete satisfaction of the engineers, but uh, we do then pass the test. So yeah, maintenance is something you're always thinking about. And uh, even though much of it can is done mechanically when you have uh, maybe 5,000 ties replaced at a time, mm -hmm. it's uh, a good experience for everybody to replace a tie by hand once in a while. <laughs> I guess it is. I loaded a, a railroad tie into the back of my Jeep Cherokee one time for landscaping. And the guy put it in there with a forklift. He wouldn't put it on top because he thought it would, would uh, crush the vehicle, which maybe it would have. I don't know. But anyway, he, he stuck it through the lift gate of my Cherokee up into the front seat. And then I had to yank it out of there by myself. And that, that's not the same thing you're talking about. But I, a railroad tie is uh, no small thing to swing around. That's for sure. Well, amazingly so. That was probably a relayed tie or one that had been in service for 20 years. And yeah, I think so. Yeah. Out yep. For you to buy. It was probably almost twice as heavy when it was new wow. because the creosote in them is uh, soaked in there and they, lose, they do lose weight over time and they lose a little bit of uh, volume themselves. It was, it was, uh, it was plenty heavy <laughs> as it was. <laughs> it was plenty heavy as it was. Um, Okay, something else. I think I've known you for over 25 years now, and uh, I'm I'm a very much a hobbyist musician. And what that means to me is that I I can play a couple of instruments with a functional level of skill, and uh, I do it when I feel like it, and I have fun. And at least my impression of you is that you're much more serious in your relationship to music. You you not only perform it often, but spend quite a bit of time practicing and building skill in, in your main instrument saxophone, but then also, you know, learning how to play the harmonica and probably a few other things. And I don't know, I, I don't think I've ever asked you how, 
how all that got started? Was it, did you pick up the saxophone in high school band and just never put it down or how did that go? Well, yeah, in the fifth grade, you could uh, be in the band at our little country school and I immediately wanted to be in the band and my buddy was going to play the saxophone. So I thought that's the thing for me. I think maybe there was always music around the house between my sister's piano playing. She's a couple of years older and my dad's appreciation for music. Uh, we, I came home from school and probably in the sixth grade and said, well, we played a neat song today. It's by this Duke Ellington guy. <laughs> and my dad said, oh, yeah, I saw him. I said, how did, how did you ever see him? Well, that's when the jazz greats were on the bus, maybe 40 weeks out of the year, traveling across the country and doing shows. And my dad had seen all of the guys that are now heroes to me in the jazz world as I'm trying to continually learn how to play improvisational jazz. And since I can't really get music theory like many people, I think, get much more naturally than me, it will always be something I'm working on. And I try and play at least five or six times a week and usually playing for fun but also working on music theory because, uh, gosh, you got to know so much of it if you're you're going to get better at, at this craft. Yeah, that's what I mean. There are two ways you can, you can do what I do, which is, which is stop it good enough, which is, uh, if I'm real honest with myself in the wee hours of the night, something I'm embarrassed about, or you can do what you do, which is actually learn how to do it for real and never stop getting better. <laughs> anyway, I, that's just something I really admire about you and anyone else who, who, uh, sticks to it for that long because I, I think what people don't know about music is that it's it, similar to woodworking or, or any other skill you have to do a lot of work even if you're born with a ton of natural talent even if you're uh, have perfect pitch from the womb the people who are really good at something spent a lot of time getting good at it well, I think somebody from the outside could look at me and say, maybe hear me play, and they might say, gosh, he's been working on this for 25 years since he picked the saxophone back up in midlife, and he's not any better than that. But, uh, <laughs> I think there's personal growth, even if you yeah. kind of got a set of stake to notice it. Um, I will say this. I play in a swing band, uh, an 18-piece big swing band, for the last 18 years, and I've enjoyed that so much, and I, I love that music genre. Uh, but the last few years, I've had a little gig band going. It's a bass and a drum and a saxophone and sometimes a piano or some other friend that we can get to play with us, and we try and work something up and play in a local pub for a few bucks. And it's just fun to create music out of some guys getting together and uh, trying to play the same song. In that uh, vein, when we've done uh, the average basis band at white commercial master management conferences, it's always such a kick because we get some people that uh, don't practice together yeah. and uh, might have heard the same recording of a particular song, and then out of out of nothing we conjure up this sound that... Uh, uh, people are nice enough to clap for when we're done. <laughs> it's re recognizable. You don't have to guess what the song is. Uh, we can say that much about it for sure. I think that's right. Yeah. 
I got the sense that uh, that that experience, even though it's fun for all of us, I, I think, well, you'll have to tell me, but I, I get the sense that it puts you out of your comfort zone a little bit because you are used to a particular style of music played with people who are also used to that style of music and you have a, a similar skill set and background maybe where you're getting together, you know, you're a, you're a, a well-trained, well-practiced jazz musician, essentially. And then you've got somebody like me who just kind of learned to play by ear in a rock and roll setting. And then you've got, you know, somebody that's a country musician singing and, and, you know, maybe the guy playing guitar likes fifties music or, you know, whatever, you've got all these things going. And is that, is it more uncomfortable or more fun or does it depend on when I, when the question gets asked? I think it's more fun when you start with nothing and create yeah. something, but I would say for that group or my, a little gig band or the big swing band, there's not a time that I go to play before people that I don't still get butterflies. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the challenge. And so you know that if the whole thing could flop, you got to hold it together and you got to have <laughs> some concentration to end up with a product. And I'll relay that to the question we talked about earlier where, uh, we talked about numerous times in the green business where I'd expanded or built something expensive that was good for the business. It's always more rewarding when you, when you try and make something out of nothing in music. And it's more rewarding when you build something in the green business that you're not entirely sure that you're going to use to its fullest extent. That's always been more exciting to me than just, uh, coasting along and doing business as usual. That's so I guess I like the challenge yep. of uh, making sure that the money you're putting down in the grain business is going to build something that you end up uh, growing from. And I like the challenge of putting something down uh, in a group, a musical group, and creating something that people can pretend to appreciate. <laughs> there there really is uh, i guess that makes me think about uh in a musical group setting you of course are working with other people and so the band may have a leader but the fact is all of the people or at least the, the overwhelming majority of the people have to do their part and they have to listen to the other people and they have to work together and, and make this go and that that's the kind of thing that's always been really rewarding to me i'm a i'm a team player type of person and i i feel the best when when a team's working together and uh, I, I wonder, in some ways, in terms of Stuart Grain, I mean, the buck has stopped with you. You're, you are Stuart Grain. You have been. And so if you're, if you're making these decisions and building these things, uh, you're not really looking, you're not asking questions of a, of a board of directors or a partner or, or, or really of anyone in any big way. But over the years also, though, you've built uh, quite a team. So I get, I'm curious, do you see a, a difference between building something musically and building something in the grain business in terms of working with other people to get it done? Well, the human experience can be, it can be lonely and it can be social and um, we all need alone time, but you can't really build something meaningful until you engage other people. So I'm not even sure what your original question was, but when you have built something in conjunction with other people. And every time it puts something out, it's been the product of 
several people working together, that's pretty rewarding. Yeah. I don't mean I don't like to go out and make music completely by myself in mm-hmm. my garage. I do like to do that. Yeah. I like to build something in the shop completely by myself with nobody around to tell me how to do it. And I like yeah. the finished product, but I think it's more rewarding when you've done that in a group setting and everybody had a part. In some ways, that, that's, that was the, I don't know if I asked the question well, but that was the, that's what I was after. It was, I guess, your thoughts on, on that generally. And uh, I, I couldn't agree more. There's there, I have a little shop and being out there in the shop by myself, putting something together or coming up with a, some cockamamie scheme to improve the storage setup in the shop or whatever. It's just one of my favorite things to do. Uh, but building something in a team, I think, is rewarding because in certain ways it's harder. In some ways it's much easier because you have more people working. But bringing all those people's talents and energy and ideas together and having the product of that be a success, there's something really special about that, in my opinion. It is special, and it's something that I'm probably only learning a lot about now. Much of my business life, I haven't had that many employees. I've done many parts of the business by myself, certainly never had to answer to a board. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could have my own board meeting. Uh, well, my annual board meeting is usually from a hammock, or at least that's how <laughs> I write it up in the minutes, because I'm the <laughs> sole shareholder and officer. And I enjoy doing things by myself. Uh, It's a different kind of reward that I'm now learning about that I've got these trained people that are right now taking care of harvest and weighing the trucks and hedging the grain while I'm in here in the house on the phone talking to you. The first 15 years, I didn't miss a moment of harvest. I was there for everything. And I got a better organization because I'm relying on good quality people to do that and not trying to do everything myself. So I'm still learning how to do that. Yeah. I think we, I think we all are. All right. I'm going to, I think we are getting close to wrapping up here, but I want to give you some rapid fire questions for lack of a better word. And the first one is this, where is some place you've been to? I know you travel a lot. Where's some place you've been to that you think most people should try to get to? Gosh. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'll just say the mountains. I'm lucky enough to go on a ski trip every year with some aging white-haired guys like myself. We've done it for close to 30 years now, and we enjoy each other's company, and we still go to the top of the mountain and the hardest terrain the first thing. Uh, but that's because we like to ski, but skiing wouldn't be near as fun if it was done on flat ground <laughs> in, uh, on a prairie, say, for instance. And I appreciate the nature of a prairie, but mountains are, are beautiful. So go see the mountains, I guess. Right. Uh, what are you reading right now, or what have you read that you remember that you think everyone should read? Well, I said I read mostly World War II history. I read... Uh, Rick Atkinson's trilogy about uh, the Second World War and enjoyed him as an author so much that I have uh, just recently followed him to his first book in his Revolutionary War trilogy called The British Are Coming. I've seen him speak and have spoken to him at the meet and greet and uh, 
really enjoy his ability to put the word on the paper. Okay. What was, uh, what comes to mind when I ask you, what was your worst day in the grain business? Thinking of a derailment we had up at the big curve at the north end of the Beeline Railroad at Handy, Indiana, uh, but you know that wasn't that much of a problem. Um, I don't think there's been that many bad days. There's been days that I've wanted to act like I was put upon and I had to work too hard and uh, things were difficult and maybe everybody was against me, but. You know, don't dwell on that because I, I like all those other days, and they're a lot more fun to think about. <laughs> I do like to be busy. I, I have this theory. I, I don't want to discount anyone's bad days because some people have very bad days, and then I guess we all do have very bad days. But a lot of times, especially I think in a business context, there there are what seems horrible in the moment when you have to try to look back on it months or years later. Maybe isn't isn't quite as bad as it seemed right then or or maybe we have a way of just tricking ourselves all the time so so it seems less bad i'm not sure you you got comfortable uh spending money on business things and in the times past when you have i when you and i have spent time together socially with some other friends of ours they've sort of poked fun at you for for being overly thrifty i'm curious have have you gotten comfortable uh spending money personally and and if so what's something that you've spent money on that you're glad you did I think uh, hanging around Daryl Fredrickson has finally uh, been enough of an education for me that I understand that it's okay to spend a little money on things that I like. And obviously, I've been fortunate to travel, uh, and I like spending. I don't mind spending money on travel at all. One of the best things uh, that my wife and I ever did was to buy a 60-acre property on a beautiful creek just 10 minutes from here. And uh, she's already left to go there for the weekend uh, today on a Friday afternoon uh, because she would be there full time if I didn't make her come back here to the elevator at least uh, two or three nights a week. So being over there at a place where we she doesn't have to hear the trucks roll in, and if we're not in a busy season, I can... Uh, almost cast a line from the back of the house and hit the water or I can just go for a hike and get lost in the woods. Um, that's been probably our, our best expenditure. Well, if, if you had to narrow down on your whole life, the, the thing that you've done, accomplished, built, whatever that you're most proud of, what, what, what is that? I think probably I didn't build it first, but I continued the trust that my customers have for me that my dad and my granddad had built before me. Makes sense. If if you could, uh, if you were on the phone with 25-year-old Bert Etchison instead of me, what advice would you give him? <laughs> well, don't, uh, don't mess around with that junk. Uh, if you if you need a machine, you need to make a good purchase, but don't wait to buy it. Quit using that junk, and your customers will appreciate it. <laughs> that sounds like good advice. Do you think 25-year-old Bert would listen to that? Absolutely not. <laughs> Everyone has to 
get their own education yeah. in the way that they're going to do it. People should always reach out for education and try to change, but it's just so hard to change some of us that have been acting like a curmudgeon since we were in our 20s. <laughs> well, I guess that's why it's important for us to to uh, spend time around other people. I, I can say without hesitation that th those several times I got to spend with you and, and the other guys there in Michigan were formative for me in a lot of ways. I learned things there that you'd never just stumble across in your daily life. And, and probably, you know, we wouldn't have had reason to talk about those things in uh, the normal phone conversations that we have. And, and uh, that was, I had the opportunity there, I think, to head off some mistakes before they became mistakes, just by, just by being around people and hearing their perspectives and, and admiring their achievements. So I guess maybe sometimes you can learn from someone else if you're, if you're lucky and paying attention. Yeah. That's absolutely right. That's been a good group, and I miss it. We keep saying we're going to get together, and I know we will, but uh, we don't get it done very often. Okay. Well, you've you have just set that in motion. We're going we're to make that happen somehow, maybe after harvest. Okay. Uh, man, I can't thank you enough. I, I, I think this went, um, from my perspective, better than I I thought it was going to go very well and I think it went even better so thank you for helping me break the seal on this project and I'm looking forward to a lot of great stuff to come out of it well I like helping you I hope that I have and uh, me knowing you has been a positive thing in my life wow uh, yeah thank you for saying that and it's it's absolutely mutual you are a big figure in my life no doubt thanks good luck thanks take care bye